23, verse 14 on down, this account of the death of Christ. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you be with the preacher and you be with those who are hearing. May we see the glory of Christ in all of his majesty and wonder as we consider the mystery of the passion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, if, uh, if you've been here uh, and been following along, we are toward the end uh, moving toward the end of Christology, um, but we will now consider uh, this week and next week, we'll go a little bit more in depth uh, on the death of Christ, um, and not specifically, because when we talk about the death of Christ, usually we associate that with merely who Christ died for, but rather this evening and also next evening, I want to talk about what Christ actually accomplishes in his death. So in Christ dying, what does he do for us? And how can we find comfort in our own dying? Because if there's anything that we are to find comfort in, it is to be death. Because the one thing that all of us eventually will experience in this life is death. All of us will die one day, and we want to be better equipped of how we are to consider um, dying well in light of Christ's death for us. And if we were, if you were here last time we were together in Christology, we looked at Christ's descent into hell, which essentially means that Christ descended into the place of the dead, that his human soul went to where all other souls go, and that is into the place of the dead. Uh, and what he does there is he proclaims the good news to those who, uh, were, who were dead, who are of the faith, and those who were not of the faith, and uh, he brings them with him to heaven. But this evening, we want to look a little more into to death, our own death. What does human death mean? Um, what happened in the fall as far as death is concerned and what Christ does in his death to, to free us from the power of death. Now, in order for us to be redeemed, the church has said that we need one who is both human and divine. In order for us to be redeemed from the power of sin, we needed one who was both human and divine. But also, in order for us to be free from the power of sin, we need one who can die for us. Because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So in order for us to be cleansed uh, fully, we needed one who could die for us. Right? Now, let me ask you a question. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And we're going to do some pretty heavy lifting uh, this evening. So just stay with me. I promise you, though, it will make sense in the end. But Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. So since He is the eternal Son of God, why couldn't Jesus just suffer and die for us without assuming a human nature? Jesus is God. So why did He have to assume humanity? In order to die for us. Why couldn't the eternal son suffer in his divinity? Why couldn't he just suffer as God? But why did he have to become man? What's the reasoning for him to take on human flesh? And the reason is because we confess 
that God, and hence Jesus, in virtue of his divinity, is impassable. The reason why Jesus, who is truly God, could not suffer in his divinity is because we confess that God is impassable. Now, what is it meant by that statement, God is impassable? The new, um, the new Catholic Encyclopedia provides a, a standard definition of impassibility. It says, impassibility is that divine attribute whereby God is said not to experience inner emotional changes of states, whether enacted freely from within or affected by his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. In other words, we have the capacity for love and anger in potentiality. And in time, and depending on the motives within us and the motives outside of us, we are moved from our passions to love and anger and actuality. For example, right now, I currently have the potentiality to be angry with you. I'm not angry with you right now, but I have the potentiality. I have the potential to be angry with you. Now, how can I be angry with you? Well, one way would be if you came up to me and if you kicked me in my leg and you spit on my face. If you were to do such an act, what you would do is you would bring out anger in me. And after you spit in my face and kick my head and kick my, kick my, my, my legs and all that, uh, then, uh, I am only in, I am only angry in potentiality. But once you commit that act, I am, I am now actually angry. Right? Or for instance, if you have a wife here, there was, there was a time when you did not love your wife. You had the potential to love your wife. But as time moved on, that potentiality to love that female turned to actuality. Because of whatever she did to you. And how beautiful she is and all these other things that go on with loving another person. So our passions, such as anger and love and things like that, they, they come upon us based upon external things. And we all know this, right? People get you angry. But when we say you get me angry, it implies that I once was, wasn't angry. And you've moved me to anger. You've moved me to love. But this sort of movement from state A to state B doesn't happen in God. God doesn't go from non-angry to angry or to loving to more loving. Because that would imply a change in going and in, in a change in state. And what we see in impassibility, this is really a consequence of God's uh, immutability. We confess that God doesn't change. That there's nothing that we can do, there's nothing that any outside circumstance can do in order for God to change. And since God can't change, then also He can't change in His inner life as such as His emotions. So God doesn't love you more today than He did yesterday. In a nutshell. God doesn't love you less than He loved you earlier. But He loves you with the highest of love. And the scripture speaks of this clearly. That in Exodus 3.14, which is really the, the, the thesis statement in which we are to read everything about God in light of. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to him, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. We read in James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we see here in Scripture that God can't undergo change in the way that you and I undergo change. He can't change his mind, but also he can't change his emotional state from going from non-loving to loving, from angry to not angry, in the sense that we go from non-loving to loving and angry to non-angry. Because if God was the change, then that would imply a change of state. That would imply motion in God. And we can't say that there is any motion in God. Now, how does this reply to, uh, apply to Jesus? Since we know that God can't change, that God can't undergo suffering and death. Because if God was to undergo suffering and death, that would also imply a change. He would go from potentially dying to actually dying. He would go from potentially suffering to now actually suffering. Well, like I've said in the beginning, in order for us to be freed from the power of death, we needed one who could free us from the power of death. But the problem is, God as God can't do that. Now, hear what I said. Since we know that we need to be freed from the power of death, and we needed one to die for us, the problem is God as God can't do that for us. God can't suffer or die. In fact, it's impossible for him to suffer and die. This is why God as God couldn't suffer and die for us. Because he can't do it. It's impossible. This is why the incarnation, God assuming flesh, is, is such a rich truth of the Christian faith. Because in the incarnation, when God assumes a human flesh, we have one who could taste death for us. Do you, do you get the logic of it now? That we needed one who can die for us. God couldn't die for us in the sense of God as God. So he needed to take on flesh. He needed to take on a humanity that would enable him to die for us. And nobody in church history has spoken to this, of this more beautifully than the church fathers. For example, Cyril of Alexandria says, This was a matter of the salvation of the whole world. And since on this account, the son wished to suffer even though he was beyond the power of suffering in his nature as God. So he says, Jesus Christ assumed a nature that was capable of suffering because in his divinity as God, he was incapable of suffering. He wrapped himself in flesh that was capable of suffering and revealed it as his very own so that even the suffering might be said to be his because it is his own body which suffered and no one else's. He made his very own a body capable of tasting death and capable of coming back to life again so that he himself might remain impassable and yet uh, be said to suffer in the flesh. Gregory Nazianza says, We needed a God made flesh and made dead that we might live. And Athanasius says, For the word, perceiving that no other, no otherwise, could the corruption of men be undone save by death as a necessary condition while it was impossible for the word to suffer death. So here he's saying it was impossible for God as God to die, being immortal and the son of the father to this end. He makes or he takes himself a body capable of death 
So God as God can't suffer, but what he does is he takes for himself a body that's capable of suffering. He takes for himself a nature, a human nature that's capable of him to suffer. So he received from the witness of the church, the eternal son, Jesus Christ, assumes passable flesh, flesh that is able to undergo suffering and death. Why? In order to taste death for everyone. Isn't that amazing? That the thing that he can't do, he does in order to die for us. And at this point, I think it's important for me to clarify that when I say the eternal son, Jesus Christ, assumes a passable flesh in order to taste death for everyone, we must keep in mind that it is only in Christ's humanity that he dies for everyone. And this is a point that is often understated and overlooked. That when we say Jesus Christ died for us, we mean that only in his humanity he dies for us. That in no way does Jesus die as God. But he dies as man. In other words, since we know that Jesus is truly God and truly man, if Christ was to die, he only dies according to a nature that is capable of him dying. And that is he dies a human death. Or we can say that the eternal son who assumed a human nature only dies according to his human nature. He doesn't no way and no shape or form die as God. He doesn't die according to his divinity. And again, this has been the testimony of the scripture and also the church. We read Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Um, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Isaiah forty twenty eight. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. God as God is eternal. Therefore, he can't die. The Synod of Rome says in 3882, anyone who says that in the passion of the cross, it is God himself who felt the pain and not the flesh of the soul and the soul of that Christ, the Son of God, had he be taken to himself the form of a servant that he had accepted as Scripture says, he is mistaken. So whoever says that Jesus Christ, with respect to his divinity, died, is mistaken. In fact, you're a heretic. Because God is God, can't die. And John Damascene says, The word of God himself endured all in the flesh, while his divine nature, which alone was passionless, remained impassable. And that's, that's a mystery, is it not? And there's a lot of mystery when we consider Christ. But Christ dies according to his humanity, while his divinity remains impassable, while his divinity remains untouched. He doesn't die. God doesn't die. But yet, he assumes a human nature that's capable of dying in one person. A great mystery of the church. So here we see that Christ dies a human death for us. We needed one who was human in order for us to die, or in order for one to, to save us from our sins. But not just any human. We needed one who was truly divine as well. And this, saints, is a point that shouldn't be overlooked. I think we often think, well, Christ dies a human death for us and we just leave it there. But you have to understand this, that Christ was sinless. And because Christ was sinless, Christ, he subjected himself. He willed his own death. 
Now, isn't that amazing? Christ is sinless according to his humanity. He's filled with the Spirit without measure. He's sanctified. He's truly God. He's never sinned. He's incapable of sinning. And yet, he subjects himself and he wills the wages of sin, which is death. Because by nature, Jesus Christ is not due to die. He's sinless. But rather, he subjects himself to death. It's one thing to not want to die. It's another thing to walk towards death and will your own death. Do you raise your hand? Do you will your own death? No. Christ willed his own death. Why? To free us from the power of death. Isn't that? A, that's very, very amazing. Now, with this in the background, we can answer what did Christ accomplish in his death. Well, before we do that, we must answer what is human death. What is human death? Now, these are things you already know. I'm just going to add clarification and give you some more definitions and and things like that. What is human death? What does it mean when we say someone has died? What does that mean? On the account of the fall, human nature has succumbed to the power of death. Now, I believe, and, and... I don't believe that I'm a heretic or much in error when I say this, but I believe that if Adam never sinned, he would have eventually died. That if Adam sinned, he would have eventually died since human beings aren't naturally immortal other than their souls. However, the body of a human being wasn't meant to be separated from the soul. Again, The body of a human being, your body, wasn't meant to be separated from your soul. But on the account of the fall, in death, because of Adam's fall, in death, we lose a subset of what it means to be human. In death, we lose a subset of what it means to be human. For at death, what happens? Our souls are separated from our bodies. Is the soul of your loved one in the grave right now? No. It is somewhere else. Because at death, that which is immortal, the soul, goes to a place. And then that which is material, mortal, which is the body, is laid in the grave. Consider the words of John Calvin. And he comments on... Um, whether Adam would have died or not. He says, truly the first man would have passed to a better life. He had remained, uh, he had remained upright, if he had remained upright. But there would have been no separation of the soul and body. No corruption, no kind of destruction, and in short, no violent change. So what Calvin is saying is, if Adam never sinned, he would have died, but he would have, it would have been a separation of body and soul. But he would have passed from one life to the next. But there wouldn't have been a separation of body and soul. But on the account of the fall, what Adam brought upon us is a separation of body and soul. If you remember last week, or last month, I rather, we talked about the soul and what it means. And essentially, the soul is what controls the body. It's what gives life to the body. It's the form of the body. It allows our bodies 
in all of our faculties to operate. You know, if you remember, the soul is not only what makes our heart beat, but also what makes it to be. Our soul is what makes our eyes to see. But at death, our souls are no longer able to animate the body. Our souls are no longer able to operate. But it, but it leaves the body and goes to either heaven or hell. And this is much different than other substances of life. When other material substances undergo corruption, what we call death, the subject ceases to be. For example, when a cat dies, a cat doesn't go to cat heaven. When a dog dies, a dog doesn't go to dog heaven. And the reason is because their souls are material. They don't have souls in the manner that we have souls. Or what about a tree? When a tree is cut down and made into timber, does it go to tree heaven? Does it go to tree hell? No. The tree ceases to be. The cat, the dog, ceases to be. There is no separation. They're just done. However, humans at death don't completely cease to be. But we lose our bodies. Our souls go somewhere. But in losing our bodies, we cannot operate fully as humans. Because we were meant to be body and soul. In a nutshell, death is our inability to retain the body. And that's really just a simplification of what I've been saying here, that death is an inability to retain the body, to hold on to the body. And at death, our bodies are held captive. In the grave, your body is held captive. But when Christ died, everything changed. When Christ died, everything changed according to the nature of death. When Christ died, he destroyed the sting and the power of death. Namely, he destroyed human death, which is a privation of the body. Consider what Hebrews 2 says. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Let me stop there. You see the writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus, who was God, was made lower than the angels. Now, what is a nature that's lower than the angels? Humans. So he became human to do what? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So he becomes human just so he can taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him... For by whom all things and by whom are all things and bring many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We see here that Christ assumes a human nature in order that he might be able to taste death in his nature, in that nature. And in tasting death, he can defeat death. In Christ tasting death, he can defeat death. And this is the beauty and mystery of the death of Christ, is it not? Because Jesus Christ, in death, he becomes one with his brethren. Christ, in death, becomes one with his brethren, meaning that he, he shows complete solidarity with us. He becomes one with us in death. 
Christ in death, he experiences human death the way that all humans will experience death. And how does he do that? His body is separated from his soul. That is one of the mysteries of the death of Christ. And one of the great, beautiful truths, right? That in his death, he doesn't die a death that is only unique to him, but he undergoes a death that all humans will undergo, and that is a separation from body and soul. And when Christ died, and when he was resurrected, for the first time in history, death's power is overpowered. That when Christ died and therefore was raised from the dead, death's power was overpowered. Now, death is a power, is it not? And the reason why it's a power is because no one can escape death. Once you're there, you're there. But not in the case of Christ. You see, death thought that it defeated Christ. But in three days, what happened? He overpowered death. He broke the doors of the realm of the dead. And he walked out the other side. And why is it, though? How is death's power overpowered? If we say that Christ died humanly, then does it mean that he defeated death humanly? No. In fact, if Jesus Christ was a mere man, even though he died... He couldn't defeat death. But because Jesus Christ was truly God, he defeated death for us. When Jesus Christ died, although he dies according to his humanity, even in death, and this is so important, even in death, his human soul is still hypostatically united to his divine personality. In other words, Even in death, Jesus still is God. Even though his human soul goes to the realm of the dead, his human soul is still united to his divinity. That is why we can say Jesus Christ defeats death. Because he is truly God still in death. As Thomas Aquinas would say, the word of God was not separated from the body at Christ's death much less was he separated from the soul. Meaning that God at death, when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and having said this, he breathed his last breath, it wasn't as if he stopped being God. But rather he remained God, even in dying. Peter speaks of this in Acts 2. Clearly, he says, him being delivered by the determinative purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by the lawless hands, having crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, how? why is it not possible that death should hold Christ? Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is truly God, even in death. That is why it's impossible for death not to hold on to Christ. Because he's not merely a man, but he's also God. So in summary, death for humans is a separation of body and soul. And the reason, uh, and because of this separation, we lose a subset of what it means to be human. 
That is to say, we lose our bodies and the powers and faculties along with it. And I'm going to touch on this when we consider some uses in a moment. In the death of Christ, Jesus dies in order to free us from the power of death. That is, he destroys human death as a privation or loss of the body. And we see this victory over death most clearly in his resurrection. As Jesus rises from the dead, not merely as a soul, but also body and soul. So when we say that Jesus Christ undoes what Adam did for us, as far as what it means to be human, he walks out the grave both body and soul. He does what Adam brought upon, or he undoes what Adam brought upon us. Adam caused a separation of body and soul. Jesus Christ, in his death, in his resurrection, has now united the body and the soul in all of the powers and faculties that go along with it. And in many ways, we can say that Jesus changes the nature of death. He changes the nature of death because death, although we will die, we understand that one day, death will have a multitude of losses on their hands. Death has one loss right now. But one day, death will have a multitude of losses because one day, we will rise from the dead both body and soul. So how do we consider this lesson in light of us living the Christian faith? Well, we see that we don't have, we don't have to fear much in death because we know that even though we will go to heaven once we die, we will reunite with our bodies we will reunite with our bodies and and ultimately fulfill God's intended purpose for us. But also, you heard me say that in death, we lose our bodies and the faculties and the powers along with it. We We lose our bodies, and along with losing the body, we lose all of our powers and faculties along with it. Now, what that means is simply this. A human soul just as a soul, is incapable of seeing things. A human soul, in order for it to see, needs to be united to a body. So when we say that we lose our body and all the powers and faculties, one of the powers is vision. We lost our ability to see, which in in philosophy it's our sensate powers. We lost vision, we lost taste, we lost appetite. But what we see in Christ is this. And, and what, is the chief, what is the highest and chief end of man? It is to see God face to face. It is to see the risen and ascended Lord face to face. Now, the beatific vision is, yes, we will see Christ and God through the heights of our intellect, that we will see him through the eyes of our mind, meaning that we will be filled with the knowledge of God But also, we will see God face to face. With our eyes, our very own eyes, we will see Him. And what we see is that when Christ rises from the dead, in Him, uniting His soul to His body, we can be promised that one day we will see Christ face to face because we will have our bodies. And because we have our bodies, 
We have those powers and faculties. Namely, and chiefly one of them, is vision. We will be able to see now our risen and ascended Christ. And that's what Jesus does for us in dying for us. Is he heals our nature by releasing us from the power of sin, but also he restores what it means to be human. That is to be body and soul. And he gives us his spirit so that we can fulfill our ultimate end, and that is to see God face to face, both body and soul. Let's pray.